Hello, Ms. Kapow. Well, hello, Brother Kapow. Today is April 13th, 2020. Monday the 13th? Mm-hmm. Wow. Are we still on lockdown? Unfortunately. <sighs> I know. All right, we're going to do Revelation chapter 2. Okie doke. There's three churches. There's three. There's three churches One Jesus is going to talk about. Ephesus. I know. Ephesus. And then Pergamos and Thyatira. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is it's pretty interesting stuff. We're going to try to bang through it once again like last time. And I will read the uh, scripture. Out of the NLT for easy understanding. Mm-hmm. And I will read uh, the commentary from the Crossway Classic Commentary. And that is classic commentary from John Calvin, Martin Luther, Matthew Henry, J.J. Packer, so, so, so. But they took all the weird old English words out and Mm -hmm. made it more palatable. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice. It's a nice little deal. It's very helpful. So without further ado, let's read the introduction. And um, could you read that for me? Yeah, I could. Thank you. The Apostle John, having in the previous chapter written about the things he had seen, now writes about the things then present as God had commanded him. It says, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, verse 1, I mean, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. That is, the present state of the seven churches of Asia, with whom he had special acquaintance, and for whom he had a tender concern. He was directed to write to each of them according to their particular circumstances, and to dedicate each letter to the angel of that church, that is, to the minister, or rather, ministry of that church called angels because they were God's messengers to mankind. In this chapter, we have the message to Ephesus, verses 1 through 7, the message to Smyrna, verses 8 through 11, the message to Pergamum, verses 12 to 17, and the message to Thyatira, verses 18 to 29. And I just realized... There's four churches. There's four churches and not three. We forgot Smyrna. 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 Okay, so here we go. If you will read okay. this. This is um, Revelation chapter 2. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. It says, I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You are patiently suffered. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Okay, and now I'll do the commentary. We'll, we'll do it that way. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, what's beautiful is how uh, our Lord commends them, right? Mm-hmm. 
and says, hey, you've done this great. I love what you're doing here. I love what you're here doing here. But I have this problem, you know, um, against you. Mm-hmm. And then he tells him the problem and says, if you don't repent of it and stop, uh, you're going to have issues with me. And then he goes and then he says, however, I do like what you're doing here and here and here. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not like these churches... Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Had to blow my to blow the keyboard off. Yeah. There was stuff on it. I think it was chicken. <laughs> it's not like um, you know. It says he removed the lampstands. It was it was a threat uh, mm-hmm. if they didn't get it together. And we'll see also that this applies to all of us because all of us who have ears to hear should hear. And um, so it's every message is for us, and we get something out of each one. So here we have we have one the inscription where we notice. To whom the first of these letters is sent. It is to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. It's a famous church in Ephesus was planted by the apostle Paul. You can see that in Acts 19. And after that, it was watered by St. John, who lived there for quite some time. And we can hardly suppose that Timothy was the angel or sole pastor and bishop of this church at this time. Or that he who had such an excellent spirit and naturally cared for the good state of the souls of people should become so remiss as to deserve the rebukes given to the ministry of this church. Notice who wrote this letter to the Ephesians. Here we have one of those titles given to Christ when he appeared to John, as recorded in chapter 1. Quote, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone... In his right hand, he held seven stars. So this title has two parts. Him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Christ's ministers are under his special care and protection. It is to God's honor that he knows the number of the stars and he calls them by their names. Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? He tells Job in 3831. And it is due to the Lord Jesus Christ's honor that the ministers of the gospel who are greater blessings to the church than the stars are to the world are in his hand. He directs all their flights and orbits, fills them with light and power and supports them or they would crash to the ground like falling stars. They are instruments in his hand and all the good they do is done through his hand being with them. Mm. So it's important that he's holding the stars or the ministers in his right hand. There, Christ has, Christ has us, right? Mm-hmm. Number two, it's Jesus. It's Christ who's walking among the seven golden lampstands. This refers to Christ's relationship to his churches. Just as the stars spoke about his relationship to his ministers, Christ is present with his churches in an intimate way. He knows and observes their state. He takes pleasure in them, just as a person takes delight in walking around his garden. Mm. Although Christ is in heaven, he walks in the middle of his churches on earth, observing what is wrong with them and what they lack. It greatly encourages those who care for churches to know that the Lord Jesus has engraved them on the palms of his hands. And that's found in Isaiah 49, 16. Yeah. What does it say? It says, See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. Always in my mind is a picture of Jerusalem's walls in ruins. The contents of this letter 
in which, as in most of those that follow, here's what we have. We have a, co a commendation that Christ gave to this church, both its ministers and members. He refers to this by declaring, I know your deeds. And therefore, both his commendation and his rebuke are to be carefully noted, for he does not speak from ignorance. He knows what he's talking about. The Ephesian church is commended. And here's what they're commended for. One, their diligence to duty. I know your deeds, your hard work. Dignity, dignity calls for duty. Those who are stars in Christ's hands always need to be moving about, dispensing light to everyone around them. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Christ keeps an account of each day's work, of each hour's work that his servants do for him. This work is never in vain. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And it says, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Amen. Point number two, for their patient suffering, your hard work and your perseverance. It is not enough just to be diligent. We must persevere and endure, endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And that's found in 2 Timothy 2.3, where it says, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Ministers must have and must exercise great perseverance. No Christian should be without it. You must have perseverance to endure attacks from people and the rebukes of providence. You must wait with perseverance so that when you have done God's will, you may continue and finish the race. Amen. Number three, here's the third thing it commends them for. Their zeal against what was evil. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. Not to be involved with or even tolerate evil fits in well with perseverance. While we must show everyone how meek we are, we must demonstrate that we actively oppose the sins of the wicked. This zeal of theirs was the more commendable as it was based on knowledge and built on previous observations of evil people. This is in contrast to, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. And that's found in Romans 10:2, which says, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. And that's Paul writing about the, the Jews. Mm -hmm. And then Christ says, you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but they're not. And you found them false. True zeal goes hand in hand with discretion. Nobody should be thrown out until they have been tried. Some people rose up in the church who pretended to be more than ordinary ministers, even claiming to be apostles. But their claims were examined and found to be vain and false. People who impartially search after truth will come to distinguish between falsehood and truth. B, now we get to the rebuke. So they're commended for all this stuff. And here's the rebuke given to the church. Yet I hold this against you. And when I first read that, you know, today it was like, ugh, mm -hmm. you know, yuck. You know, I did, you know, you do this and do this is good, but. I had to hold this against you. It's like, well, man, you know, mm -hmm. you don't want Jesus holding anything against you. Um, but what I've learned here is his yoke is, is light. His burden is light. Um, this is stuff that we could easily avoid. 
Uh, people who have a great deal of good in them may also have a great deal of evil in them. Our Lord Jesus, as an impartial master and judge, takes notice of both good and evil. He starts by noting what is good and is most willing to mention this, but he also observes what is wrong and will faithfully reprove his followers for this. The sin which Christ accused this church is their decline of zeal and holy love. Hmm. He says, you have forsaken your first love. They have not forsaken the object of their love, but have lost the fervent desire with which their love started. So it's not like they forsake forsook God. Yes. It's just that they're not fervent in their relationship with him. Yes. And that's a, that's a huge distinction, mm-hmm. right? Because if they had forsaken God, Christ wouldn't even be commending them. No. So it's just that they just kind of got lazy and used to it. We've mm-hmm. all been there. Right. Um, we've all been there. We just kind of, you're just not as on fire as you, as you used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so notice, number one, the first affections of people toward Christ and holiness and heaven are usually lively and warm. Like when you first get saved, you know, mm-hmm. God remembered Israel's love when she followed him wherever he went. Two, these lively affections cool down unless great care and diligence is taken to keep them exercised constantly. You know, you get you get entangled with the world. Mm-hmm. Three, Christ is displeased and grieved with his people when he sees them grow remiss and cold toward him. Christ will one way or another make them realize that he does not accept this behavior from them. <laughs> See, the advice and counsel Christ gives them. Here's, here's what he says. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do these things you did at first. So, those who have lost their first love must remember how far they have fallen. They must compare their present state with their previous state and reflect on how much better they were then than they are now. Uh, in fact, we should be doing the opposite. You should go, man, I'm better today than I was yesterday. I'm mm-hmm. better. I got more zeal now and more understanding than I did last year. They must recall how much peace, strength, purity, and pleasure they have lost because they have forsaken their first love. They must remember how much more comfortably they used to be able to lie down and sleep at night, how much more cheerfully they could wake up in the morning, how much better they were able to bear afflictions and how much more they were able to enjoy the favors of providence. They must remember how much easier it was for them to think about death and how much more they used to desire and hope for heaven. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a heavy sentence right there. Two, they must repent. They must be inwardly grieved and ashamed of their sinful decline. They must blame themselves for the state they are in, humbly confess this before God, judge and condemn themselves for this. Three, they must return and do the good deeds they did at first. They must, as it were, begin again, go back step by step until they arrive at the place where they took the first false step. They must endeavor to revive and recover their first zeal, their tenderness, their seriousness, and must pray earnestly and watch diligently as they did when they first started to follow God. Um, and I can relate to that. You I know, mean, I got saved when I was 15. And then by the time I was 18, I was somewhere else mm-hmm. within three years. You know, Satan will do that. The world will do that. And I was still a Christian, but I was mm-hmm. uh, not where I was when I first got saved. Um, this, this good advice is urged first by a severe threat. Should we choose to ignore the warning, 
If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's in verse 5. If the presence of Christ's grace and spirit are slighted, we may expect to receive his displeasure. He will come by way of judgment suddenly on impenitent churches and sinners. He will remove them from the Christian fellowship and will take his gospel ministers and ordinances away from them. And what will the churches or the angels of the churches do when the gospel is removed? Second, this advice is given to encourage them to act in, a way, in the right way. But you have this in your favor, he says. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So that's what I love. Hey, you're doing this right. You're doing this right. And I dig this. And then, but this thing I have against, you shouldn't. This is bad. Now, this is what you're doing good also. <laughs> so he's, he's very... He's a good boss, mm-hmm. you know, even though you have declined in your love and doing what is good, yet you still hate what is evil, especially blatant evil. The Nicolaitans were a sect who hid behind the name of Christianity. They believed hateful doctrines and they were guilty of hateful deeds, hateful toward Christ and toward all true believers. It is to the credit of the Ephesian church that they were zealous in their hatred of this evil and that they abhorred these wicked teachings and practices an indifferent spirit towards truth and error, good and evil, may be called charity or meekness, but it does not please Christ. Our Savior adds this kind of commendation to his severe threat to make the advice more effective. We come now to the conclusion of the letter, whereas in the other letters we have a call to be attentive. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, it's for, it's for all of us. Notice, one, what is written in the scriptures is spoken by the Spirit of God. Two, what is said to one church concerns all the churches everywhere and in every age. Not just here, mm-hmm. everywhere. Three, we can make no better use of our faculties of hearing than listening to God's word. We deserve to lose our hearing if we do not use it in this way. Those who do not hear God's call now will eventually wish that they had never had the ability to hear at all. A promise of great mercy to those who overcome. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's our goal, right? Mm -hmm. The Christian life is war against sin, Satan and the world and the flesh. It is not enough to just engage in this war. We must fight it to the end. We must never give in to our spiritual enemies, but must fight the good fight until we achieve the victory, as all preserving Christians will do. This war concludes in a glorious triumph and reward. The reward that is promised here is to eat from the tree of life. If Adam had been successful in his temptation, he would have eaten from the tree of life in the middle of paradise, and that would have been a sacramental assurance to him about his holy and happy state. All who persevere in their Christian trials and warfare will receive from Christ, as from the tree of life, perfection and assurance about holiness and happiness in God's paradise. This will not happen in the earthly paradise, but in the heavenly one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. I should have you read this. Okay. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, with a fresh crop each month. And the leaves were used medicine for medicine to heal the nations. Yeah. So that is our goal, to do that, right? Mm -hmm. To eat of the tree of life. I hope you learned something here about the Church of Ephesus. I did. Didn't you? So the next church is... Smyrna. How you say it? Smyrna. <laughs> Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say that they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Hmm. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. And now, Ms. Capel, mm -hmm. we move to the second letter. Yep. And this is to Smyrna, <laughs> right? Yep. Okay, so just like the other letter to the Ephesians, the preface or the inscription comes first, then the superscription telling us to whom it was specifically addressed to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Mm -hmm. Then as now, Smyrna was well known to merchants. It was a city of great trade and wealth, perhaps mm -hmm. the only city out of the seven that is still known by the same name. Huh. Yeah. Now, however, it is not known as a place of Christian worship, but as a place where Muslims worship. Mm -hmm. There's Muslims. The subscription contains another glorious title of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, the first and the last who died and came to life again. Mm. So one, Jesus is the first and the last. We have only a short time to pass through this world, but our Redeemer is the first and the last. He is the first since through him everything was made. He was before all things with God and was God himself. He is the last for everything is made by him and he will judge everyone. Amen. This is surely the title of God from everlasting to everlasting. And it is the title of the one who is the unchanging mediator between God and man. Amen. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And through him, the foundation of the church was laid in the time of the patriarchs. He is the last because through him, the capstone will be brought out and laid at the end of time. Amen. Wow. Also in this title, we find he died and came to life again. Amen. He died for our sins and he came to life again, rising again for our justification. And he always lives to make intercession for us. Praise God. He died and by dying brought salvation for us. He came to life again and through his life, he applies this salvation to us. Is that good? Mm-hmm. That's, so we um, that's what we were celebrating yesterday, his resurrection. Exactly. This is Resurrection 
Sunday. Every day is resurrection day. That's right. Yeah. So by dying, he brought salvation to us. And by coming back to life through the resurrection, he applied salvation to us. Mm -hmm. Woo-woo. And if when we were enemies, we were reconciled through his death, much more now that we are reconciled, we will be saved through his life. Amen. Okay. We commemorate his death every sacrament day, his resurrection and life every Sabbath day. So it's always Resurrection Sunday. Mm -hmm. The theme of this letter is to Smyrna. After the usual declaration of Christ's omniscience and the perfect knowledge he has of all the deeds of men and especially of his churches, John notes the progress then made in their spiritual state. This comes in a brief parenthesis, but it is emphatic. It says, yet you are rich. Amen. They were poor in worldly goods, but rich in spiritual blessings. They were poor in spirit, but rich in grace. Mm. Their spiritual riches were set off by their outward poverty. Many who are rich in worldly goods are spiritual paupers. This was the case with the church of Laodicea. But in Smyrna, some who were outwardly poor were inwardly rich. Mm. They were rich in good deeds, rich in spiritual privileges, and rich in hope. That's where you want to be. That's where, That's where want I want to be. Yes. Amen. Spiritual riches are usually the reward of? Great diligence. So when you say, that's where I want to be, that's where I want to be, it takes diligence. Mm-hmm. Almost like, um, you know, what he was taking to the church of, of Ephesians, mm-hmm. you know, Ephesus. Get back and be diligent. Mm-hmm. The diligent hand makes rich. Where there are spiritual riches, outward poverty may be born more easily. When God's people are impoverished in this life for the sake of Christ and a good conscience, everything is made up to them in spiritual riches, which satisfy and endure more than anything else. You know, that's um, some the scripture in Proverbs kind of comes to mind about the person that diligently works obtains riches yes i don't know where that's found but there is a scripture in proverbs for about that right not being a sluggard or Mm -hmm. lazy because that one doesn't get anything yeah Mm -mm. so there's a spiritual truth there yeah yeah absolutely they're sufferings (laughs) (laughs) i know your afflictions and your poverty They were persecuted and even lost their possessions in the process. Those who are faithful to Christ must expect to go through many tribulations. But Jesus Christ takes particular notice of all their troubles. Can you imagine that? Mm -hmm. He knows all all the junk you're going through, man. In all their afflictions, Christ is afflicted, and he will recompense tribulation to their persecutors. And those who are persecuted, he gives rest with himself. Amen. Christ knows the wickedness and the falsehood of their enemies. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and not. Um, Our NLT says blasphemies, Mm -hmm. and that's in the Greek. Um, King James translated it slander, but it's blasphemy. That is, he knows about those who pretend to be only special covenant people of God, as the Jews boasted even after God had rejected them. That's uh, a hypocrite. Yep. Yeah. It is. 
or this refers to those who would be setting up the Jewish rites and ceremonies, which were now not only antiquated, but abrogated. Mm-hmm. These people may say they are the church of God in the world, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. Ooh. Ooh. Observe first as Christ has a church in the world, the spiritual Israel of God. So the devil has his synagogue, his assemblies that oppose the truths of the gospel and promote and propagate damnable errors. Such people oppose the purity and spirituality of gospel worship and promote and propagate the vain inventions of men and rites and ceremonies that never entered God's thoughts. Hmm. Such assemblies are set up to revile and persecute the true worship and worshipers of God. These are all synagogues of Satan. Satan presides over them and works in them, and his interests are served by them. He receives horrid homage and honor from them. You don't want to go to a synagogue of Satan. Mm -mm. Second, for a synagogue of Satan to pretend that it is the church or the Israel of God is nothing short of blasphemy. God is greatly dishonored when his name is made use of to promote and patronize Satan's interest. And really, that's the that's really what blasphemy means. You're using his name inappropriately. Mm-hmm. He greatly resents this blasphemy and will take just revenge on those who persist in it. See, they're, they're saying, oh, this is from God, we're from God, and they're not. God knows in advance about the trials his people will suffer, and he warns them about these trials before they take place, and so arms them against them. So he forewarns them about future trials. He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. God's people must expect a succession of troubles in their world, and their troubles usually become greater and greater. Ain't that the truth? Mm -hmm. They had been impoverished through their afflictions previously, and now they are going to be imprisoned? Notice that it is the devil who stirs up his followers, wicked people to persecute God's people. Tyrants and persecutors are the devil's tools. Even though they may gratify their own sinful malevolence and not realize they are motivated by diabolical malice. So Christ forearms them against this approaching trouble. He says, first, he does this by his counsel. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Wow. Mm. This is not a word of command, but of efficacy. Not only forbidding slavish fear, do not be afraid, but subduing it. And so furnishing the soul with strength and courage. Hmm. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Second, Christ shows them how their sufferings will be alleviated and limited. In the first place, their sufferings will not be universal. The suffering is restricted to some of them. Some of them, not all of them, would be thrown into prison. These people will be those who are best able to endure this, and they might expect to be visited and comforted by the rest. In the second place, they will not be in prison forever, but for a set time, a short time, 
10 days. This would not be an everlasting tribulation. Okay, Mark 13, 20 reads. It says, in fact, unless the Lord short shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. In the third place, these tribulations are to test them, not destroy them. This is an important point. Mm -hmm. The tribulations are to test them, not to destroy them. So that their faith and patience and courage might be proved and improved and be found to honor and glorify God. He's a sovereign God. Mm -hmm. Third, Christ proposes and promises a glorious reward for their faithfulness. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Observe. In the first place, the certainty of the reward I will give you. Christ has said it, and he is able to do it. He has promised that he will do it. He will they will receive the reward from his own hands, and none of his enemies will be able to grab it from him. In the second place, note the suitability of this reward. It is a crown, a reward for their poverty, their faithfulness, their conflict. Not only is it a crown, but it is the crown of life to reward those who have been faithful, even to the point of death. It is a crown for those who are faithful until they die. To those who lay down their lives in faithfulness to Christ, that life, so worn out in his service or laid down in his cause, will be rewarded with another, a much better life that will be eternal. So the conclusion of this message, as before, is a call to universal attention, that all people, all the world, should hear what passes between Christ and his churches. This includes how he commends them, how he comforts them, how he reproves their failures, how he rewards their faithfulness. All the inhabitants of the world should observe God's dealings with his own people. The whole world can learn wisdom this way. Hmm. So with a gracious promise to the conquering Christian, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Amen. <clears throat> Notice that there is only a first and a second death. A death after the body is dead. The second death is indescribably worse than the first, both in the dying pangs and in its agonies. For these agonies are the agonies of the soul, which has no support. And these agonies are in its duration. It is eternal death. It is fatally harmful to all who fall under it. From this harmful, destructive death, Christ will save all his faithful servants, the second death will have no power over those who take part in the first resurrection. Amen. The second death will not hurt them. The second death will have... Oh, it says the first death will not hurt them. Oh, the first death will not hurt them. The second death, the will, second have death no will have no power over them. Amen. Amen. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Okay. Shall we keep moving? We shall keep moving on. And this is... This is the message to the church in Pergamum. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you in there in Satan's city. 
but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you who, whose teaching is that like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip, trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has ears must, anyone who has, I'm sorry, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Well, <clears throat> here you have the mention of the Nicolaitans again. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> I gotta find Pergamum. Yeah. Let's see. So, we consider the inscription of this passage. It was sent to the angel of the church of Pergamum. Whether this was a city raised up out of the ruins of old Troy, as new Troy, or some other city, uh, we don't know. Uh, who sent the message to Pergamum? The same Jesus who here describes himself as one who has this sharp double-edged sword mm -hmm. out of his mouth. Now, some commentators have observed that in the different titles of Christ attached to the beginning of several of these letters, there is something specifically applicable to the state of those churches. Like, for example... In the letter to Ephesus, what could be more pertinent to wake up a sleepy and declining church than to hear of Christ as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands? So the church in Pergamum was infested with people of corrupt minds who did what they could to corrupt the faith and behavior of the church. So they were among them, right? Mm. The Nicolaitans. Christ resolved to fight against them through the sword of his word. It takes the title of the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. The word of God is a sword. It is both a defensive and offensive weapon. It is in God's hand able to kill both sin and sinners. It's sharp. No heart is too hard to be wounded by it. No knot so tightly it can't be severed. It can cut through and separate soul and spirit between the soul and those sinful actions that through habit become another soul or seem to be essential to it. That's in Hebrews, huh? Yeah. It is double-edged. It turns and cuts every way. There is the edge of the law against those who break that dispensation and the edge of the gospel against those who despise that dispensation. There is an edge that can wound and an edge to open a festered wound in order to bring healing. There is no escape from the edge of his sword. If you turn to the right side, it has an edge that side. If you turn to the left, it has an edge. If you fall on the edge of the sword on that side, it turns every way. From the inscription, we move on to the contents of the letter, which is similar to the other letters. Christ takes notice of the trials and difficulties this church encountered. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith to me, even in the days of Antipas his faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So the deeds of God's servants are best known when the circumstances under which they did those deeds are carefully considered. 
the circumstances that added great luster to the good deeds of this church was the place where it was planted, a place where Satan has his throne. As our great Lord takes notice of all the advantages and opportunities we have for duty in the places we live in, so he takes notice of all the temptations and discouragements we meet with all the places where we live, he takes all this into account, right? And he mm -hmm. makes the necessary allowances. This people lived where Satan has his throne. This is where he had court. His circuit is throughout the world. His throne is in places that are notorious for wickedness, error, and cruelty. Some think the Roman governor of the city was violently opposed to the Christians so that the center of the persecution was Satan's throne. Christ commends their steadfastness, yet you remain true to my name. You did not remount and renounce your faith in me. These two expressions mean the same thing. The former may signify the effect, the latter the cause or means. You remain true to my name. You are not ashamed of your relationship to me, but count it as an honor that my name is placed upon you. Mm. Just as the wife bears the husband's name, so you are called by my name. You remain true in this and count it an honor and a privilege. That's right. <clears throat> You're being commended for that. What has made you faithful is the grace of faith. People who renounce their faith, they boast about their sincerity and their faithfulness to God and their consciousnesses. But it is most rare for those who let go of the true faith to retain their faithfulness. Faith is the rock on which most people make shipwreck of their lives and shipwreck of their good consciousness, consciences too. Here our blessed Lord praises the faithfulness of this church in the context of the circumstances of the times as well as where they lived. They had been steadfast even in the days of Antipas, which was his faithful witness. Who this person was and whether there's anything mysterious in his name, we have no information. But we do know he was Christ's faithful disciple, for which he suffered martyrdom. He sealed his faith and faithfulness with his blood in the place where Satan had his throne. Wow. And although the rest of the believers knew this and saw it, they were not put off but remained faithful. This is mentioned to their credit. Mm -hmm. Christ reproves them for their sinful failures. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Dang. Hmm. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. How did he do that? By eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. Some people taught that it was lawful to eat food sacrificed to idols and that sexual immorality was not sinful. These people, through their impure worship, drew people into impure practices as Balaam did to the Israelites. You see, this is all paganism. It's mm. always idolatry. Yeah. It's always idolatry. <clears throat> One, an impure spirit and an impure flesh often go together. Corrupt doctrines and corrupt worship often lead to corrupt behavior. Isn't that the truth? Mm -hmm. It is right to call the followers of any heresy by the original leader's name. It is the easiest way to identify them. Three, to maintain fellowship with people of corrupt principles and behavior displeases God. 
and brings guilt and darkness on the whole of society. They take part in the sins of other people. Though the church as such has no power to punish these people, either for heresy or immorality with physical punishment, it does have the power to exclude them from holy communion. That means fellowship. Mm -hmm. If the church does not do this, then Christ, the head and lawgiver of the church, will be displeased with it. In other words, what are we tolerating Mm-hmm. in our gatherings. Right. <clears throat> what kind of doctrines are we tolerating? Christ calls in the repentance. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, right, and fight against them with the sword of my mouth, which is interesting because he's coming to them, but he's going to fight against, but where it rains, where it storms, you're going to get the rain, mm-hmm. you know, that come out of her, you know, get rid of them. Look at this. Um, Repentance is the duty of saints as well as sinners. It's a gospel duty. Two, it is the duty of churches and communities as well as individuals. Those who sin together should repent together. Three, it's the duty of Christian societies to repent of other people's sins insofar as they have been involved in them. Four, when God comes to punish the corrupt members of a church, he rebukes that church itself for allowing them to continue in its fellowship. And some drops of the storm fall upon that whole society. Hmm. Five, no sword cuts so deep nor inflicts such a mortal wound as the sword of Christ's mouth. The sword of my mouth. Just allow the threats of the word to hone in on the conscience of a sinner and he will quickly be a terror to himself. If these threats are executed, then the sinner will be cut off completely. The word of God will take hold of the sinner sooner or later, either for his conviction or for his confusion. So we have the conclusion of this letter where after the usual command for worldwide attention, there is the promise of great favor to those who overcome. Right? The hidden manna indicates the influences and comforts of the spirit of Christ in communion with the believer coming down from heaven into the soul from time to time for its support, to let have a little taste of how saints and angels live in heaven. This is hidden from the rest of the world. Each heart knows its own bitterness, and no one else can share its joy, in Proverbs 14. This delight is contained in Christ, our Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. The white stone, with its new name written on it, is absolution from the guilt of sin alluding to the ancient custom of giving a white stone to those acquitted after a trial and a black stone to those condemned. Reminds me of being blackballed. Right, yeah, that came to mind too. The new name is the name of adoption. Adopted Mm -hmm. people take the name of the family into which they are adopted. Nobody can read the evidence of a person's adoption except for the person who was adopted. Even he cannot always read it. But if he perseveres, he will have both the evidence of being a child of God and the inheritance. Wow. Pretty, uh, pretty cool, huh? Mm-hmm. Now we come to the last church, the church of Thyatira. Thought. Well, in this chapter, anyway. In this chapter, yeah. And it reads, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. 
you are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly, unless they repent and turn away from their e her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations, and they will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Wow. <clears throat> Once again, all these condemnations, all these... Uh, um, all these uh, promises to them and and telling how much he, he digs them and they said but this one thing you have and it's the teaching of Jezebel but it was the same thing as in the church prior to that I know Thyatira, yeah isn't that which something is, uh, the sexual sin and um, um, f food offered Offer to idols. idols I thought that was interesting it's the exact same thing as the doctrine of Balaam the Whereas Pergamum um, allowed those to be in their churches, mm -hmm. right? They they allowed that teaching in the churches and, and led people astray. In this one, in Thyatira, they tolerate her. Mm -hmm. So it almost sounds like she's outside of that church, but they tolerate her. Both are bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... <clears throat> The form of each letter is very much the same. In this letter, like the other letters, we have to consider the inscription, contents, and conclusion. The inscription tells us to whom the letter is addressed. is to the angel of the church of Thyatira. Thyatira was a city in the proconsulate of Asia, bordering Myasia on the north, and the trading town of Lydia on the south. A woman called Lydia, who traded in purple cloth, came from Thyatira. When she was in Philippi, most probably on business, she was converted after she heard Paul. Amen. That's found in Acts 16. It is not known if the gospel spread through Lydia, but this letter does assure us that there, had, uh, there was a church there. Who sent the letter? The Son of God. Mm. Here's how he's described here. He has eyes like a blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. His general title here is Son of God. Mm. That is the eternal one and only Son of God. This denotes that he has the same nature as the Father, but a distinct and subordinate manner of subsistence. That his eyes are like blazing fire signifies his piercing, penetrating, perfect knowledge. He has a thorough insight into all people and to all things. I am he who searches hearts and minds. I will make all the churches aware that he does this. His feet are like burnished bronze. This indicates that the results of his providence are awe-inspiring. 
or they're characterized by steadfastness, purity, holiness. As Christ judges with perfect wisdom, so he acts with perfect strength and steadiness. Mm -hmm. The contents or subject matter of this letter, like the others, include an honorable character and commendation Christ gives to his church, ministry, and people. This is given by someone who is no stranger to them, but who is well known to them and knows the motives that have governed their actions. About this church, Christ makes honorable mention of their charity. <clears throat> in general, they have a disposition to do good to all people, and in particular to the household of faith. There is no religion where charity is absent. Two, their service. This is mentioned with particular reference to the officers of the church, the elders who direct the affairs of the church, well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, is preaching and teaching. Their faith, which actuated all the rest, both their love and their service, and their perseverance, people who are most charitable to others, most diligent in their own work, and most faithful, must still expect to meet with circumstances that will demand perseverance. And their growing fruitfulness, you are now doing more than you did at first. This is an excellent characteristic. When others had lost their first love and their first zeal, these people were growing wiser and better. It should be the ambition and earnest desire of all Christians that their last deeds should be their best deeds, that they may be better and better every day and their last day is their best day. It's mm. good advice, huh? Mm -hmm. A faithful reproof for what was amiss. This is not so directly charged on the church itself as on some wicked people among them who had seduced them. The church was at fault for conniving too much with them. These wicked seducers are called by Jezebel's name and compared with her. Jezebel persecuted the Lord's prophets and was a great patroness of idolaters and false prophets. These seducers sin by attempting to lure God's servants into sexual immorality and into their eating of food sacrificed to idols, basically idolatry. They call themselves prophets, and Jezebel called herself a prophetess, thus claiming superior authority to the ministers of that church. Later on, you, you'll, you'll hear Christ say that they, they claim that their knowledge was deeper. Mm -hmm. They had this secret knowledge. It's secret knowledge, like Gnosticism, more than what, what you get from the Bible. So we, mm -hmm. have, we have deeper knowledge. I'm a prophetess. God told me this. God told me that. Two things aggravated the sin of these seducers who, being one in their spirit and design, are spoken as one person. They made use of the name of God to oppose the truth of his doctrine and worship, and this greatly compounded their sin. So they did it in God's name. Two, they abused God's patience by hardening themselves and their wickedness. God gave them time to repent, but they were unwilling. Observe in the first place that repentance is necessary to prevent the sinner's ruin. In the second place, repentance requires a course of time and an appropriate opportunity. In the third place, when God gives the opportunity for repentance, he expects to see the appropriate fruit of repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3, 8. Mm -hmm. In the fourth place, when the opportunity for repentance is lost, the sinner perishes with double destruction. So there's a whole process here. It's not just bam. Mm -hmm. It's a process, right? 
You understand that. That's somebody who's not repenting. Mm -hmm. They're given a chance and they're not. You wouldn't be reading this or listening to this if that was you. You would be a false prophet doing other stuff. Okay? Why should the wickedness of this Jezebel be leveled against the church of Thyatira? Because that church allowed her to seduce the people of that city. But how could they have avoided this? They did not have the civic power as a church to banish or imprison her, but they did have the ministerial power to censor and excommunicate her. It is probable that failing to use the power they had made them share in her sin. It's very much like the, the sin in Pergamum. Mm-hmm. They were among that church, and this one is one who tolerate an outsider doing, leading people astray, mm-hmm. and they were tolerating her. So here's the punishment. In these words is hidden a prediction of the fall of spiritual Babylon also, because you can see that in, in Revelation. It's almost the mm-hmm. same thing. He says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, not a pleasure, a bed of flames. And those who have sinned with her will suffer with her. This can be prevented through repentance. One, I will strike her children dead. That is with the second death. The second death does the work effectively and leaves no hope of future life. No resurrection for those who are killed by it, but only shame and everlasting contempt. Christ's purpose in the destruction of these wicked seducers This is contained in the instruction of the others, especially in his churches. He says, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and will repay each of you according to your deeds. The Lord is known by his justice. Mm, That's in uh, Psalm 916, where it says, the Lord is known for his justice. The wicked are trapped by their own deeds. Through the revenge he takes on the seducers, Christ will make known one his infallible knowledge of people's hearts and motives. He knows their indifference and their inclination to side with idolaters. Two, his impartial justice. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Just being called Christians will offer them no protection. Their churches should not be sanctuaries for sin and sinners. The encouragement given to those who kept themselves pure and undefiled. He says, now I say to the rest of you, all the rest of you, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Okay? So what these seducers called their doctrines, deep secrets. Mm. See, that's why she was prophetess. Yeah. God told me this. I had a dream. I had a vision. God to... Blah, blah, blah. Well, that's not found in the Bible. It don't matter. God told me. Mm. It's new revelation. And it was leading them into idolatry. Right. Deep secrets, profound mysteries. They attracted, they still do today, don't mm-hmm. they? Yep. The sexy stuff attracts people all day long. They attracted the people and tried to persuade them that they had a deeper insight into religion than their own ministers could give them. Mm. You know, what Christ called them, Satan's so-called deep secrets. Christ labeled them as satanic delusions and diabolic mysteries. There is indeed a mystery of iniquity. Um, Second Thessalonians. It says, For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. There's also the mystery of godliness. And that's found in 1 Timothy 3.16, where it says, Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. 
Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. That's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it's funny that it's in First Timothy 3.16, like John 3.16. 316. Huh. Interesting, yeah. I, th- I think it's That's true. Cool. That question, it's, it's right there. Wow. It is dangerous to despise God's mysteries, and it is dangerous to welcome Satan's mysteries. Mm-hmm. So they're saying they, they both exist. How tender Christ is towards his faithful servants. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He says, I will not burden your faith with any new mysteries, nor your consciences with any new laws. I only require you to pay attention to what you have received. So really, folks, we got to stick to the doctrines that were handed down to us by the apostles. Right. And not add anything to stuff. Mm-hmm. Just stick to the biblical truth. Don't add or take away. Yeah. And you'll be okay. You will, God's not requiring to put any other stuff on you. Mm-hmm. Just stick to what the Bible says. You'll be okay. Uh, he says, I desire nothing else. Do my will to the end. Christ is coming to put an end to all the temptations of his people. If they remain faithful and keep their consciences clear until he comes, all the difficulties and dangers are past. Amen. Right? So here's the conclusion. To him who overcomes and does his will to the end, he'll give authority over the nations. He's going to rule with iron, right? He's going to dash them to pieces like pottery. He's going to receive authority like he received authority from his father. They're going to, he's going to, they're going to get the morning star. If you have an ear, let's hear. So here's here's what we have. We have the promise of an ample reward to the persevering. That's always the topic here in these letters. And it's all throughout the gospel to endure. Endure endure to the end. Hang on in this prison planet. Just Mm -hmm. hang on to what you know. You're a victorious believer. This is shown in two parts. Here's the promise of two parts. Very great power and dominion over the rest of the world. Authority over the nations may refer either to the time when the empire became Christian and the world was under the rule of a Christian emperor, such as Constantine, or the other world when believers will sit down with Christ on his judgment throne. I think the latter. Mm -hmm. The latter is the time when they will join Christ in putting on trial, condemning, and sentencing enemies of Christ and of his church. Psalm 49.14 says, Like sheep... They are led to the grave, where death will be their shepherd. In the morning, the godly will rule over them, and their bodies will rot in the grave, far from their grand estates. Amen. Second, there's knowledge and wisdom suitable for such power and dominion. Christ says, I will also give him the morning star. Christ is the morning star. Mm -hmm. He brings day with him into the soul and light and grace and glory, and he will give his people that perfection of light and wisdom that is appropriate for the state of dignity and dominion that they will have on the morning of the resurrection. That's an Easter message right there. Yeah. And this letter concludes, Miss Kapow, with the usual demand to be listened to. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the called out ones. In the previous letters, this command precedes a concluding promise. I noticed that. But in this letter, 
And in all the following letters, it comes after the promise and tells us that we should all take note of the promises as well as the precepts that Christ delivers to the churches. Amen. So that concludes chapter two. Yes. And next week, God willing, we will go into chapter three. Three. And um, that should be the uh, Church of Sardis and uh, and onward. Okay? Okay. I don't have the rest of them right here off my cuff. No. But I will. You will. So give everybody a hallelujah shout and good night. Ciao, babies. Here we wait for judgment day. Eyes were told to watch and pray.
to watch and pray. Son of man.